welcome to the of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and each week I write a column addressing some news-based energy story. This week I addressed a story that I think was kind of lost under the radar in the news of Iran and El Chapo and other things going on in the world that got far more press time, and that is that on July 15th, Mexico had their first auction for oil and gas um, participation for foreign investment. This is a unique experience in that this hasn't happened for nearly 80 years. So I wrote a column about some of the, the negatives that took place and the opportunities that were there. And this week we're going to talk to several different experts on Mexico and the opportunities and obstacles perhaps that are there. First, we're going to talk with Sheila Hollis. And Sheila is an energy lawyer, a partner with Dwayne Morris in Washington, D.C. She's taught energy law for more than 20 We just got acquainted through this topic, but I discovered that Sheila's also spent some time in New Mexico, where I'm based. So, Sheila, welcome to America's Voice for Energy. Thank you, Marita. It's a pleasure to be uh, on the line with you. Now, you participated in a lot of oil projects around the world. How did you specifically get interested in Mexico? Well, growing up in the Southwest and uh, traveling to Mexico a great deal as a young person uh, and as a child, my, my mother was always interested in Mexico, uh, the history of Mexico, and also um, going to school in uh, Denver, a uh, great deal of my grade school I was taught uh, by uh, Sisters of Charity who actually uh, were of uh, Mexican-slash-Spanish uh, heritage. So it was, uh, uh, it was kind of in my blood from day one, and living in Los Alamos, too, had a, had a lot to do with it. So I was imbued with the culture, always interested in it, took a lot of archaeology and anthropology and history, and uh, was always fascinated by Mexico and its history. Wow. Well, since you mentioned Los Alamos, I just have to throw in the Los Alamos newspaper publishes my, my weekly column. So a little connection oh, there with Los Alamos. Wonderful. So what, what's your view on what's happening with Mexico's energy reforms? I've had mixed response to my column, which I felt was a fairly optimistic piece, and that's how I feel about Mexico. I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. But some of the people um, on the websites where my column is posted, such as Breitbart.com, have written comments in response to my column, things like, oh, Mexico is never, these are not reforms, this is just window dressing, and, and comments of that nature. Well, um, I'm an optimist, of course, so uh, that, that that tells you uh, the perspective I'm, uh, I will approach this from. Uh, having worked in Mexico and realizing the depth of intelligence, the depth of need, and the incredible resources that are there in Mexico, both uh, human and uh, uh, of a natural sort in the form of oil and gas and uh, many other um, elements, there are, there are reasons to be optimistic. The need is great for infrastructure modernization, for a switch of, uh, of sources of fuel, particularly for electric generation, for addressing pollution problems uh, in Mexico, and Frankly, certainly with respect to natural gas, uh, the natural gas option is incredibly attractive. And 
it has not happened of its own volition to the extent that one would hope. There is a, a tremendous need for infrastructure modernization and basic infrastructure development for pipelines and the like. Without having a more flexible, open uh, environment for companies to invest and come into Mexico uh, in, a, in, a more, um, in a more fulsome way than they have in the past, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So I think that Mexico came to the decision that something had to be done. It is certainly a huge change. Uh, it is a cultural shift. It has to get over the tremendous uh, history um, and uh, passion and politics associated with the petroleum resources of Mexico. Uh, going back yeah, my, some of the research that, you know, I read pointed out, which is logical if you think about it, but it pointed out that most people alive today in Mexico have never known uh, an oil and gas climate different from what they have today, meaning that Pemex has always been, um, it, for most people alive today, that's all they've known. Well, yes, and uh, any place you buy, go in to buy gas for your car in Mexico, you're pulling into a Pemex station. Exactly. I was I spoke in Mexico back in May of this year, and in February of last year, I was spoke to a, a expat community outside of Guadalajara at uh, Lake Chapala, and uh, it's, it's you know it's kind of I saw that firsthand. Oh yes, and so you have to. I think you have to look back and realize the tremendous history leading up to it. You need to go look at the Diego Rivera murals that are um, all about the expropriation of the oil companies in 1938. You see the passion and the emotion in those, and that tells you a lot about what you need to know going in. You have to be realistic in going into Mexico. You can't wave a magic wand and everything. All the uh, all, everything uh, from the past can't be wiped away with. Uh, with, uh, with magic. It's going to take a lot of rebuilding of trust and relationships, uh, which have been, there have been uh, baby steps back and forth over the years. But the truth of the matter is there's already importation of natural gas into Mexico from the United States along the border where the industrialization is so great. And I'm sure that Mexico would like to be able to develop more of its own resources to serve their own people and to build the infrastructure necessary to support it without some input of capital without input of expertise and uh, basically big players from around the world who feel like they can get a foothold, it makes it very difficult to do that because, frankly, with the pension liabilities problems that uh, many entities are suffering around the world, pension liabilities, um, the complexities of the interrelationship and dependency of government on uh, Pemex over the years as a source of revenue for general use uh, in the budget. There's a lot. There's a lot to get over here, but you have to yeah. start somewhere. And I think we, you should take heart in the notion that we're starting. This is. I, I won't say it's an experiment, but it's got to be taken extremely cautiously. So the the uh, results of the July fifteenth auction were not what uh, the Mexican government had hoped for. But I found it interesting in reading through uh, my research that they really weren't expecting to sell every block that they put up or sell using the term, you, you can probably correct 
me on how to, what the right phrase is, but they really weren't expecting to sell every block they, they put up for auction. They were hoping for 30 to 50 percent of them and, and ended up with only 14 percent, which is two of the 14 blocks that they put up. Do you see that as part of that caution? Well, I think the caution extends to the state of the market in general. Um, there's a lot of players around uh, the world that are backing away from projects or pulling back from the total commitment to a project or putting it on the back burner for a while mm-hmm. to see where the market heads. So I think you're seeing a reflection of that, first of all. I mean, that's the realities of the worldwide market for oil. And with the yeah, and when Mexico put these reforms together, put these packages together, we were looking at oil at $100 a barrel price range. Yes, or, you know, certainly above 50. And so so a lot of things, you know, that's the reality of, of the world oil situation. So it, that is what it is, and, and you know, uh, it will take years for this to really shape up and get rolling to the extent that one would want under the best of circumstances, just the physicality of the of the business. Uh, but with the with the softening of the of the uh, prices, it's it certainly led to a lot of of uh, reflection, more reflection than than uh, could have been expected two or three years ago when this got rolling. So I, I look at this at this first auction as a bit of a test balloon in some respects. I think uh, it's likely that they they felt that they had to go forward with it to see basically test the waters and see what was out there and see what the interest was and to see who might come out. Uh, Come out and uh, tip their, put their toe in that water to see what it's all about, and see the get the lay of the land as to how this might work. So, what do you see as the uh, risks for potential uh, investors or partners in in Mexico's oil and natural gas development? Well, other than the market itself, which is risky, sure. If everything was uh, pristine, uh, I think the the biggest risks have got to be political. Um, change of political heart, um, anything that ends up tipping the balance in a negative way, which, for example, like a Macondo well disaster in the, or uh, a disaster that impacts everybody's perception on an already delicate subject in Mexico. Uh, I think also uh, concern over the economy, uh, concern over the impact on uh, the unions, both uh, Pemex and uh, uh, CFE, the Comisión Federal de Electricidad. Um, those entities are deeply embedded in Mexico. They have tremendous political influence. They, are, um, they influence all of government uh, in, in many, many ways, direct and indirect. They're the providers of jobs and, and uh, basically whole communities are built around them. So uh, tugging on that uh, is is probably, uh, to me, I think, just the, the riskiest part, just life being what it is. And it's a st- it has been a state-owned enterprise. It has, been, it has been so woven into the political system that even though these are baby steps in some respects, just these first initial explorations of, of what, it, what could be done under the, under the new laws, Still, it's it's very very sensitive. So I'd say political. Uh, if it goes forward and there's an environmental, a big environmental problem, that's you know just a death wish really here. Um, those are the types of concerns that that uh, I would have. So in our last couple minutes that we've got together, you're optimistic that you see this as a good opportunity. I do. Uh, we've got we share 
1,950 miles of border with Mexico. We have uh, uh, millions of, of uh, movements back and forth across the border on an ongoing basis. We're, they're one of our biggest trading partners. It's a huge economy. Mexico City is the biggest is the biggest city in the in the in our hemisphere. It's just it, there's too many things at stake here, and and Mexico needs us, and we need Mexico it, to a, a huge extent, and. This ought to work. This ought to work together really, really well. Uh, we can help them, and they can help us. And uh, if you look at just the, uh, a map of the United States, and you realize the the influence of Mexico in the United States and vice versa over hundreds of years, it's amazing. And not to treasure that and try to make this experiment work, I think, uh, is is going to be a challenge, but I think it can be done. But like I said, I'm an optimist. <laughs> well, I am too. I, do you feel like it was apt to have any um, impact? And we just have a few, fifteen or so seconds left. But do you feel like it's apt to have any impact on uh, immigration issues? I think if there's job opportunities created in Mexico, more job opportunities, more training, more uh, opportunity for uh, employment at uh, at higher levels with better salaries. I think absolutely it's going to strengthen Mexico. It's going to lead to more infrastructure development. It's going to lead to industrialization, which can work for Mexico. It will it will ramp up the economy if there is greater access to energy, if the uh, it, and uh, cleaner energy too. Let me say, natural gas is is a great transition fuel. Uh, in addition to the renewables, which they have, which have been deployed very successfully for obvious reasons, solar in Mexico, it makes sense. So there's a whole series of things at work here. Uh, it ought to work, and it should work uh, if we can get over ourselves, both on this side of the border and theirs. <laughs> Sheila Hall, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. I appreciate your insights on uh, Mexico's energy reforms and their future. Well, we'll be right so back. It's, it's delightful to talk to you. Thank you. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about the opportunities available in Mexico for the oil and gas industry because of their new energy reform. On July 15th, they had their first offshore auction. In fact, it was their first auction uh, in nearly 80 years. So this is an exciting opportunity in Mexico. And I'm pleased to have with me today the uh, marine analyst with IHS 
Energy from Petrodata Marine Base, Richard Sanchez joining us for this segment. I ran across Richard's work uh, when I sent out an email to my email list of nearly 5,000 people saying that I was going to write on this this past weekend, and I needed to hear from people who had any experience or input. Well, most of the people who responded, which was only about five people total, said, you, I don't want to be quoted. Don't use my name, but here's what's happening. And then another person sent me a link to a column written by Richard Sanchez on oilpro.com. And he had some great insights that I quoted within my column. And so I did some sleuth work and tracked down Richard. And now I've got him with us today for this edition of America's Voice for Energy. So, Richard, you've been following Mexico for several years and following the reforms even before they were reforms, correct? Yes, that's right, Marita. Um, I've been tracking the offshore supply vessel markets in Mexico for approximately six years. Uh, the main focus of my job is really uh, following the offshore activity uh, related to the offshore supply vessels uh, throughout the Americas. Uh, and I've been observing Mexico uh, for quite some time now. Uh, for, the law, for, for, for most of the last six years, uh, it's mainly been following uh, Pemex's uh, drilling and exploration activity, uh, which then generates the need for offshore supply vessels. Um, so I generally focus on, on, on exploration and production activities on, on the offshore markets throughout the Americas. And Mexico has definitely uh, become much more of an important and prominent market. Um, it's already been one of the major markets of the Americas. Uh, the, the main market for, uh, for offshore oil field services in the Americas are the U.S. Gulf, uh, Brazil, and Mexico, and then followed by the much smaller markets of like uh, Canada, uh, Trinidad, get into the really small, what we start calling the micro markets because their activity is transient, the Falkland Islands, uh, Suriname, Guyana. Last year we had a little bit of offshore drilling off of Nicaragua. Um, but right now, uh, Mexico is really the next big opportunity uh, that we're really observing. Um, and like you said, this is really a historic time. Uh, they're opening up to foreign participation and, and foreign operators to come and, and participate in Mexico. There's been a lot of excitement throughout the oil field service industry uh, as they observe Mexico as having really strong potential uh, to really grow uh, significantly larger as a as a market for oil field services than we'd seen in the past. Yeah, it's a, I think it's an exciting opportunity. I, it's my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong or expand on this, that Pemex does not have the uh, experience and perhaps the technology for deep water exploration. Now, that's not entirely true. Um, they, uh, Pemex actually has been working and exploring in, in, its, in, the, in the deep water regions of the U.S. Gulf uh, for several years now. Um, if you look back historically, most of Pemex's drilling had been in the Bay of Campeche, which is uh, where they have the big shallow water Cantarell fields. And so mainly Mexico has been very focused on shallow water. But over the last yeah, several and, years... Yeah, and let me just jump in uh, here for a sec. Is mm -hmm. that where the 14 blocks that were offered in the July 15th auction were? 
Um, uh, I think some of them were in there, and some of them seem to be uh, in some of the other, you know, some other exp uh, exploration regions. Um, okay. Yes, it's mainly been in the shallow water regions, um, and it's really the deep water side where, where I think we're going to see much more interest. Uh, this current um, awards for the shallow water have been relatively uh, disappointing. Only two of the blocks were awarded. However, it's, it was not entirely unexpected. The major oil companies are really much more interested in going after the large deep water fields uh, than they are in participating in Mexico's uh, shallow water. Um, so, like I was saying, Mexico has been drilling in, in the deep water. Uh, they've actually made some significant discoveries uh, not far from uh, uh, Shell's discoveries up in the Perdido Fold Belt. Um, I think the discoveries Mexico made is, uh, I think, Supremo and Maximino. Um, now, these were exploration, so they've, 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 they've shown that they can go out and explore. Uh, I think the real question is, is whether or not they can, uh, how fast and how efficiently they can do it. And then also the next step is probably the hardest part for the deep water development, is to actually take those, those d discoveries and then and take them into the next much more expensive, complicated phase of actually going into production, of actually going in, in, and doing uh, uh, further appraisal drilling to, to, decide, to actually figure out the size and, and uh, um, composition of, of the field. And then also they need to go and do all those subsea installations. And that's really probably the, the, the region where Pemex has really been lacking. So while they have been participating in doing some deep water exploration, it's really on the development side um, that 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 uh, is part of the reason for the energy reforms is I think uh, the 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 authorities in Mexico and in Pemex realized that uh, that to actually develop these big deep water discoveries was going to require very significant upfront capital cost and then also if it was to be done in a cost effective in a timely efficient manner uh, that they were going to be need to bring in the heavy hitters with real deep water expertise uh, like you have in Brazil. In Brazil, uh, with Petrobras, um, they kind of became their own seawater experts in part because they had to. They really didn't find much in their shallow water, and so if Brazil wanted to keep pursuing, you know, their their oil uh, resources, they really, it was sort of very incumbent upon them. Uh, I think we're probably talking back around the 90s and, and maybe even before to really, you know, to to uh, to um, to figure out how to do that deep water work. Pemex has had all this shallow water uh, oil to access, which is uh, significantly less, co less um, capital cost intensive right, than the right. deep water. And so it, it's really been sort of, uh, they've kind of ignored the deep water because they have so much shallow water to work with. Um, but over the last few years, that shallow water production has been falling back. And, uh, and this is part of why they've been starting to push their deep water programs and then the, the actual energy reforms uh, to really bring in the significant uh, capital and expertise to really develop uh, uh, what we imagine is very vast oil wealth on, on the Mexican side of the U.S. Gulf in the deep water. Yeah, and that's where we're expecting to see, as you pointed out, the big boys uh, coming into play. And that auction, I understand, is expected to be in early 2016? Um, I believe so. It seems that they've been sort of moving and juggling these around, so I don't have the exact date on on when the uh, the next uh, deep water concessions are coming out. But there's some uh, earlier stuff that might happen, uh, which are the Pemex farmins. Uh, I don't believe these have been these have been scheduled, but this is basically uh, deals 
where Pemex can bring in partners, both financially and as operators, to actually help them go and 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 develop some of these deep water, uh, uh, some of these deep water discoveries that they've already made. Uh, that seems very likely. In fact, there's already been talk uh, about doing uh, some sort of um, collaboration with Shell to do a tie back. Um, that would be instead of just sort of um, installing their own sophisticated production platform, uh, the idea is they might be close enough to Shell's platform where they could uh, just do a tieback and sort of link in the, the production and, and the pipeline to, uh, to, to, you know, to save on costs. Uh, this is something we see happen in the U.S. side all the time, uh, where companies will collaborate and, and cooperate with each other. If, let's say, uh, one of them has a big, uh, big production spar uh, that's already been installed, and if you have other fields nearby, often they can do a tieback where they feed in to the existing structures. This often creates very significant cost savings uh, rather than having to start from scratch. Um, this is something that we've seen happen quite a lot in the U.S. Gulf on the U.S. side as they've as they started in the shallows and sort of went out further and further. Um, it wasn't unusual that instead of bringing a, a floating production platform like the big FPSO tankers that we see in Brazil, um, you know, we, we tend to have more uh, more facilities like pipelines and tiebacks into existing uh, infrastructure. Now in Brazil, they didn't have that sort of that sort of gradual growth going from shallow water where you're building up the infrastructure and then out into the deep water, you know, where you can sort of try to continue tiebacks and, and, uh, and do that cost savings. They basically went straight from sort of uh, onshore to have to go way, really, very far offshore, and that's where you start to see the, the FPSOs or the floating production platforms uh, uh, come in as, as, a, as a solution. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see exactly what are the best solutions for Mexico. We might find that, that uh, FPSOs might be a viable uh, way of, of producing that oil um, for, for some of the more remote parts. But at least for the early discoveries, um, my understanding is it seems that doing a tieback uh, with the Perdido Fold um, installations is probably going to be their most cost-effective solution. And those would be done through some kind of a partnership kind of agreement, not through an auction set up. Is that right? That's right. That's, that's right. That's where we're talking about the Pemex farm ends. Before round one happened with the auctions, you had round zero in which Pemex was allowed to basically stake out which of the, which of the blocks that they wanted to develop and explore. And, and uh, so they went ahead and, and they, you know, they got those. Now those, Pemex really needs help in, in both in the expertise for developing the deep water, uh, but they're also finding themselves in a bit of a financial pinch. Uh, right now, Pemex's budget is very constrained, uh, in part largely because of the because uh, of the uh, the drop in oil prices that we've sure. experienced over the last year. Um, and so, uh, Pemex is really looking for for people to come in and farm in and basically, you know, take a stake on existing uh, on existing either production or blocks that they already have uh, to to participate. The farm ends. Uh, that's something that we, if there's potential, we could see that happen more quickly, and and those could actually, uh, I think, have the potential to generate activity much more quickly than than the auctions. Because with the farmins, you've already got Pemex has already been working and doing doing uh, working on these projects, 
And so it might be a lot faster when you bring in a partner to, to you know, to continue and expand those projects, whereas with the auctions, uh, what we're likely to see is, uh, like with this auction for round one, and I think it was, what, Sierra and Premier and Talos uh, that were formed a consortium that won the two right. blocks. It seems very likely they're they're probably going to want more seismic data. Uh, they're going to want to evaluate the blocks that they have. They're probably going to want to look at surrounding infrastructure and see if there's a potential for for tiebacks. Um, you know, before they actually uh, before they actually uh, go in and start hiring rigs and equipment, uh, which is what I think a lot of us are are waiting to see when that will happen. Um, that could ha that could really be two three years down the line. Um, as, as uh, the planning, is, it could take quite a long time. Yeah, wow, you're a wealth of information on this, Richard. There's so much more we could cover. Where can our listeners find your article on this topic? Um, my, my story right now is on oilpro.com. Um, I've been posting stories up there uh, about once a month or so, uh, but my, the primary source of, of, uh, of accessing my information is through IHS. Uh, Petrodata Marine Base. It's a market intelligence tool that's really just available by subscription, um, and it provides a wealth of, uh, of stories and market data on the offshore industry throughout the world. Well, thank you for your insight today on America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking with Richard Sanchez. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. In our last segment, we were talking Sanchez, and he is a marine analyst with IHS, as I'm sure you recall. And after we got off the air, Richard told me about a free webinar he is hosting coming up on July 30th. And so I wanted to alert you to that because if you're interested in Mexico's oil development, this is something that you might be interested in. So let me give you a couple details on that before we continue. The webinar is titled, Mexico, What the Energy Reforms Hold for the Offshore Supply Vessel Industry. I acknowledge that's a narrow little niche, but if you're interested, here's some of the things they're going to be covering. Timetable for ramp-up of offshore activity, seismic exploration drilling and field development, shallow water and deep water, offshore vessel demand growth expectations, historic offshore activity and day rates, and lessons from Brazil. 
This free webinar is taking place on July 30th at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is complimentary. And if you're interested, I encourage you to contact Ann Fort at Ann Fort at IHS.com. That is Ann dot, excuse me, it's A-N-N, since there's different ways to spell Ann, A-N-N dot F-O-R-T-E at IHS.com. That's A-N-N dot F-O-R-T-E at IHS.com. Now, for our third segment of the show, we're going to combine a couple of things. I have been working to try to get Duncan Wood to join us. And Duncan Wood is the director of the Mexico Center at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Excuse me. He's the director of the Mexico Institute at the Wilson Center. And he's got fabulous qualifications. I found out about Duncan because he was quoted in a, in a column on um, the Mexico oil development in Bloomberg. And he and I have been back and forth, and he was able to carve out 10 minutes of his time for me. And um, we talked. We had a great chat. And somehow uh, technological skills failed. And I didn't get his segment recorded, but I did want to point him out to you and draw your attention, if you're interested, to a, a piece he wrote in a blog with the Financial Times called Beyond Bricks. And the blog title is Mexico's Oil Auction, Short-Term Disappointment Versus Long-Term Progress. And I want to point out one thing that Duncan brought up in his blog post on the Financial Times that was new to me, and he explained it. And this is the line from the Financial Times. He says, the government received offers from just nine bidders, five individual companies and four consortia. And he says, a pitiful tally, given that 49 companies each paid $365,000 to enter the data rooms, and 25 of those companies pre-qualified to bid. Now, that was shocking to me, and I just want to share this with you. What he explained to me in our conversation was that 49 companies paid this $365,000 that allowed them to examine all of the data had. Uh, already done, the basically seismic data I asked him about, yes, he said that's what it was. So they could determine was this something they wanted to participate in. And then once they looked at the data, about half of those companies, 25 of them, them then went through the process to pre-qualify to bid. Now, Many of those didn't end up bidding on the July 19th opportunities, but he explained that they're likely looking at the deep water, which is what, what everyone's talking about. And Duncan was optimistic about Mexico's energy future. Now, since I, I messed up and don't have Duncan's interview, I'm pleased that I, I'm able to have with me my friend Baron uh, back. Baron uh, is Baron Lucas has been on the show with me before, and I brought him in specifically to talk about uh, the demographics in Mexico, which he has a lot of expertise in, and how that might apply to Mexico's energy revolution. So. Uh, Baron, thanks for being willing to jump in with me here at the last minute. 
No worries. I'm very happy to do so. Thank you for having me. So you've heard my introduction there, what we've been talking about. So tell us about why you think this is important, especially considering the demographics of Mexico. Yeah, this is a kind of a complicated story about I'll start with saying that Mexico, other than having a very viable energy industry of their own, has a an interesting opportunity over the next several decades, and that is the demographics of Mexico uh, being what they are, and they are basically that it is a uh, a right-side-up uh, demographic pyramid, a de- demographic triangle, meaning that there's a few older folks and a lot of young folks. And so if you picture a regular triangle uh, and old folks on the top, young folks on the bottom, that's the, that's the demographic of a developing nation. And Mexico and India and some other folks have the, uh, the advantage of having that kind of demographics. It leads to the ability to have a large labor pool. It leads to the ability to enjoy uh, not only a large agricultural industry, if the climate is, is for that uh, industry as it is in Mexico, and also a large manufacturing capability potentially. So what we have in Mexico is we have the right population, we have a situation globally where a lot of manufacturing is leaving places like Japan and China that have an upside-down demographic, meaning there are more old folks than young folks. And so we have a, a lot of industry going to Mexico. And so what's required for industry? Well, you have the people. That's great. You need cheap, uh, reliable energy. And uh, you need it in 24 hours, seven days a week, kind of consumption capability, and what's always being held Mexican manufacturing back is they haven't been able to turn the lights on all the time and not the 24-7, certainly. So now we have the right demographic. We have an extraordinary amount of U.S. natural gas being piped, not liquefied and shipped, but piped down to Mexico, and now we have an ability for Mexico to have a, a 20 around-the-clock manufacturing operation and using U.S. natural gas imports, uh, that's a significant difference for Mexico in, in what we've seen in the past. Uh, they've got some, uh, they certainly have some political issues and some, some, some drug and crime issues and all that, but the, fundamentally now they're set to have a large number of, of people being employed in viable manufacturing and have the the influx of cheap U.S. energy to get it done. Yeah, there's great opportunities there. And uh, what my first guest that I talked to, uh, who's an attorney in energy law area, Sheila Hollis, and we talked, I think it was her that I asked. I asked one of my earlier guests anyway. Um, I, I said, do you think this is going to have an impact on the immigration issue uh, for America, because now there's going to be, with this new energy reform, this large demographic, as you talk about, population, uh, there there should be, I mean, I, I acknowledge it's going to take a few years for this whole energy reform to really ramp up, but do you think that will have an impact in the United States? Uh, it could very well, and, and uh, I don't think this is a forum to discuss that particular political football, but yeah. I, I suspect 
I suspect that reality is that if if I am a Mexican citizen and, and, and I am now in a position where I can get quality employment, it isn't just about creating jobs. It's about creating jobs that are meaningful and where the wage is enough where I can support my family. And certainly manufacturing lends itself to that. And perhaps I have less of a reason to travel north illegally to try to find a, a way to sustain myself uh, in the United States. Uh, I, I, now, maybe that's a stretch, but but just, you know, if, if, if we can kind of loosen our minds a little bit, you know, the potential of having a more economically viable uh, Mexico with less reason to leave, perhaps, then we have less reason to have little immigration in the United States and solve a problem which, frankly, in my opinion, you know, you know my history in the military, I, I, I don't see how we can ever control a border that is that long and that porous with Mexico uh, to prevent immigration, illegal immigration. It would be much better for Mexico to be more economically viable and therefore have less of a reason for people to leave. Yeah, that's, that's, I feel, I, you know, everybody I've talked to about this issue has been pretty optimistic overall about side of it, which I, I acknowledge is a tangent, but they've been optimistic about uh, that it's actually going to, to happen, that it's going to be good. The reason I say that is, well, I've had pretty good feedback. People have emailed me in response to my column this week, which, by the way, you can read on Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and a variety of other outlets, including the American Spectator has picked this one up. So I'm pleased with that. But I've had, So I've had pretty good response to the piece, but when you read, when you go to those websites and you read the column, there's comments on many of the sites. And some of the people that have commented have been less optimistic. Um, they have said things like, oh, come on, this isn't, you know, Mexico is going to just repay, re, you know, take over the co companies as they've done before. And... Um, you know, that, that that's why companies are hesitant to go there, and I certainly understand the company's hesitancy. In fact, one of the things Duncan Wood mentioned to me is um, that the NAFTA free trade agreement protects manufacturing and some others down there, but they're not sure yet that that applies to energy issues. And, um, but... So, so some of the people that have commented online have said, "Oh, this is you know, this is all fake reform and so forth." But I feel pretty optimistic about it, and I, I think, considering um, your expertise on the demographics, it seems like it's uh, really something that's important for Mexico. Well, absolutely, um, and, and, and it's really kind of a, a perfect timing at a time when we've got such a significant issue in China. Uh, economically, with a four trillion dollar uh, stock market right now, uh, severely aging demographics in China. China is losing a lot of manufacturing, and so now and there has to be another place to go. And Mexico is, for the United States, particularly a very uh, uh, geographically uh, well placed uh, trade partner, and, and, uh, and it already is one of our largest trade partners. And now. With such a wonderful demographic and such a such a large pool of available labor, the influx of of uh, what is, in my estimation, hundreds of years of natural gas capability from the United States. Now we've got an ability for them to have the cheap energy, the labor, 
and the economic interest from manufacturing companies in the United States and, and from Europe and from other Asian countries to go to Mexico and do that. So I, I, the, the whole thing is an extraordinary good event for Mexico, and I think it can help uh, not only legal immigration, but can help the, uh, Mexico get control of its own uh, issues, whether it's poverty, whether it's drugs, or whether it's cartels. Uh, the more economic viability you have for your population, the less likely you are to have those kind of problems. And I look forward to seeing the next decade to see what Mexico can do for it. Yep, that's about the time that it's going to take. Uh, you know, I'm, people say it's going to be three to five years before we see any real significant offshore development, but it's exciting opportunity. So, Baron Lucas, I appreciate you jumping in with me today. Uh, you, you're a consultant for the oil and gas industry with your company, Vital Strategies, and they can reach you how? Uh, they can reach me by uh, email. It's probably the best at baron at vitalstrategiesllc.com, or they can go visit my website at www.vitalstrategiesllc.com. It has my email, it has my phone number, it has a contact page, and gives you a, a full in-depth look at all of my services, and I welcome them to contact me for any kind of help I can provide. Thank you. Great. Thank you. We'll be right back with America's Voice for Energy. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we've been talking about Mexico and their energy reforms and kind of perhaps their little slow start they had with their auction on July 15th. But in our final segment, we're going to talk to someone from the industry who has the potential to be personally impacted in a positive way by Mexico's energy reforms. We're going to talk with John Beckstead, who's a consultant. He's got more than 35 years of experience in the oil and gas industry on a variety of continents and a variety of uh, aspects of the industry, which he'll tell us about. But John and I connected earlier today for the first time because he read my column. He read my column on Mexico's energy reforms and sent me an email to compliment me on the column. Now, I don't put everybody who compliments me on the show, but John brought up some features uh, about what I had written. That I wrote him back and said, 
would you please join me on the show to discuss those? So, John, thanks for taking time out of your day to join us on America's Voice for Energy. No problem at all. So tell us a little bit about your background first, if you don't mind. Well, I have a background in, uh, in the drilling business where I started out and then uh, went from there. Oh, golly, I've got uh, experience in uh, uh, drilling and completion and uh, workover and directional drilling and uh, fracking, also known as fracturing, and uh, many other areas, including uh, some land negotiations and, uh, and um, things like that, including regulatory work. Well, you've got a lot of experience. I'm glad that we've connected. I'm sure you're going to be a, a resource for me in the future. With the vast experience that you have, what would you say about the, the job market in the oil fields today? It's pretty rough right now, uh, especially for, for a lot of us who are either very experienced or have very little experience. Um, the in-between, some of them are, are still working, but I knew when I saw the price drops uh, that things were going to get rough, but I've seen these more than once, so I kind uh, of take them in stride. Now, you say it's, it's tough on the very experienced. I have a friend in Farmington, New Mexico, who works for a company who happens to be one of my donors, um, and he's one of those very experienced, and he got laid off. Would you say that maybe the top layer is getting laid off because they're higher paid? Exactly, uh, and it's, a, it's an accounting decision in most cases. It's not the uh, basic uh, knowledge that you have. It's how much you're getting paid. And um, the, some of them they ought to ask. Some of us they ought to ask. We wouldn't mind getting a little less pay for a little while either. Yeah, times are tough out there, that's for sure. I mean, we've seen so many rigs being pulled. So what, what, what did you feel when you read my column that, uh, that caused you to reach out to me? Well, a couple of things. One is that I've, I've spent time in, uh, in Mexico, Ciudad uh, de Carmen area, um, trying to help uh, the local college here in Farmington uh, see what they could do to help um, the uh, what was the University of Automation there uh, to help their engineering uh, school and that sort of thing. Plus, I think, and I have for a long time, that we, the U.S. and and Mexico, need to get together and start working towards. Uh, a real good working relationship that we have had fairly good for a while, but it's not it's not where it's going to have to be. One of the things you said in the in the your uh, column is the fact that uh, we have the pipelines and the infrastructure that they don't have yet, and that's one of the things that I think is going to help if we can all get together and start working with the Mexican. Um, oil company and the Mexican, and then people who go down and invest and drill in Mexico. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made, but there's going to have to be some money spent up front. Yeah, because they don't have uh, the knowledge, the technology. I mean, they don't do hydraulic fracturing. Uh, I, I was at the uh, NAEP 
convention. You may be familiar with that. It's not really a convention, but because NAPE stands for North American Prospectors Exhibition. And I was at that in Houston, Texas, a few years back when these energy reforms uh, were first announced in Mexico. And I was talking with, I believe, some petroleum geologists there. And, um, John, you, don't, you and I don't have a, a long history so you don't necessarily know that I have no background in this industry. You've got 35 years of experience. I've been doing kind of the side of the industry that I'm doing now for eight and a half years, but I come from a career as a motivational speaker, not as an energy person. So I don't mind uh, admitting, you know, I don't know stuff. And I find that when I'm when I say I don't know this, the guys in the industry have been wonderful to me to pour their knowledge into me. And I was at this NAEP event a few years back, and I was talking to these guys, and they kind of, when I talked about what was Mexico's energy potential, they looked at me kind of like, duh, but they said, you know, the Eagleford shale doesn't stop at the border. And right. for me, that was sort of, I'm embarrassed to admit, but it was kind of an aha moment. I just had never, you know, I just hadn't thought about it. And he said, it goes right on. In fact, the gentleman I was talking to, uh, gentleman plural, said, in fact, it's believed that there's even more on the Mexican side of the border than there is on the U.S. side of the border. But they don't have experience with the horizontal drilling and the hydraulic fracturing and those advanced technologies that we have in the United States. Right, and and I think that not only on land, but in the Gulf of Mexico area, we, we, we've got a whole lot of great upcoming projects, and, and yes, we are more experienced, those of us here in the United States, than they are in Mexico. Not, not there's anything else there going on, but there's a lot of us who would very much like to help them get their uh, industry up and going because it's going to help all of us. Yeah, it'll help North American energy security in addition to providing jobs, which are greatly needed right now uh, in the oil industry. What do you think about the current price of oil and the Mexican uh, oil development story? How do you think that's going to play out? Well, initially I think that maybe it might drop a little bit more, but then it's going to bump up, and I think over the next year or two, we're going to start seeing prices in the somewhere between $65 to $75 range, and I, I think we're, we're probably not going to see the real high $100 a barrel again for a while, except for maybe a bump or two. I just unless don't there's major unrest in the Middle East. Yeah, and, and well, unless there's major unrest, and it's going to have to be big time, which is going to really increase the price because we're going to need a lot of fuel uh, for the people who are fighting against it. Yeah, I just, I fear this Iran nuclear deal uh, is, has the potential to really increase unrest in the Middle East, which even though if Iran dumps these proposed 1.5 million barrels of oil into an already global, uh, glutted global market, that it should in theory drop the price, but I think we're, we're going to see a lot more unrest um, in the Middle East long term, maybe not immediately, but uh, then that has the potential to really then bump the price up. Right, and I don't, I don't see that the that OPEC has has the power or is going to have the power they have had in the past to keep the price uh, 
stable or to or to drop it as they see fit. I don't see well, it. Well, you know, OPEC OPEC kind of has an unwritten rule, to my understanding. This is what I've been told that they kind of have an unwritten rule that if a country, a member of OPEC, such as Iran, uh, is prevented for whatever reason from exporting their resource, that when that changes, that the other countries will back off so that that member country can, you know, make up the difference. But honestly, I don't really see that happening in this case, in, in this climate. What do, you, do you have any opinion? I don't either. I, I don't think that those, those are the kind of people that are going to start doing that sort of thing for each other. I just don't see it happening. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, who knows? It would be nice because it could really do a lot, lot more damage to the U.S. oil and gas industry if Iran did dump um, that excess resource or extra resource into the global market. Uh, it has, you know, really, really scary potential. Yes, I understand one ship has already left. Really? I haven't heard that, huh? I saw something on the Internet this morning about it. Well, if you, if you happen to get your hands on it, forward it on to me, because I've been following that story pretty closely. But back to Mexico. I mean, you know, the, you know unfortunately for the Mexican uh, auction on, on, the seven, on the 15th, excuse me, that it was the same week as the Iran deal was announced. So I think that dampened some of the enthusiasm. But I'm pretty optimistic, uh, although I've had mixed results from my column. People that have emailed me, like you have said, you know, basically, bravo, good job. But when you read the comments to it, such as those on Breitbart and some of the other sites that publish my work, uh, some of the people that have read it have not been that optimistic. Well, and, and uh, I think that particularly you, your uh, major people who didn't invest this time around, I think that they're going to. And I think that on your column you mentioned the, the deep water areas. I think that's a big plus. Right yeah. now, you're going to see a lot of people uh, standing back a little bit from the uh, shale uh, formations, but that's going to change in a while, too. A lot of this is just going to work itself out. And, and why, why do you think they'll stay away from the shale formations? Uh, because right now, even though we've got a lot of good technology for it, even though it may be just a sim very similar to what's, for example, in the Pecos area of Texas. It just, it, every well is different. Those of us who have been around enough years can tell you that we've drilled wells uh, very close to each other, and they were quite a bit different. So we're going to have to get a little background in each area that we're going to go to before we start saying, okay, now this is going to be less expensive because this is exactly how we're going to do it. Yeah, I understand that the seismic work in Mexico uh, is maybe not uh, up to par with what our expectations, primarily because they don't have the high-end technology that we have. Our technology in those areas has changed so much in the last 10 years, it's just simply amazing. And what we are able to see uh, and where it is and all those sorts of things like that is is uh, it's a, a complete upgrade from what it was when I was young and just getting up and running in this business. Yeah. We've got about 30 seconds left, John. What do you think is the upside for both the oil and gas industry in America and Mexico in this? And, again, we've only got 30 seconds. Yeah. I think as the, 
as particularly as the prices stabilize in the midsection of what prices are going to be, we're going to see a lot of help from the United States to Mexico and the people there, and I'm really looking forward, I hope to be a part of it, uh, that we need to help each other out. And, and I think you're going to see a combination of not only industry, but of governments helping each other out and people. And, and it's going to be a whole lot better than the border disputes we've got now, for God's sakes. Yeah, good good point, John. John Beckstead, thanks for joining us today and giving us your kind of on-the-ground perspective of the energy reforms in Mexico. You've been listening to America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you for